Thank you for investing your time in a Duncan's From the Field podcast series. We hope you are getting a ton of value from each episode. On this podcast, Duncan has a conversation with Dan Klein, author of My 359, The Man I Am Called to Be. To learn more about Dan and his book, My 359, visit 359.com. Enjoy. Hello, this is Duncan McPherson with Pareto Systems, and I'm very happy to be joined on this podcast uh, with Dan Klein, a family man, financial advisor, a speaker, and author of the book, My 359. So Dan, thanks very much for making the time to join us for this conversation. How are you doing? I'm wonderful. Thank you, Duncan, for having me. Great to be here. Excellent. Well, first of all, uh, and I've been looking forward to this chat for quite a while. We've had a couple of uh, pretty meaningful interactions, and I love your journey, and uh, I definitely want to hear more about that. I did uh, read your book, and uh, you know, as a dad, as a businessman, obviously, uh, I can relate to many of the things that you talk about, not all of them, uh, but we'll get into that in a moment. I, I just want to start off with the theme of your book, My 359, because first of all, I'm fascinated by the winning edge and what separates the best in a field of endeavor from everyone else. And uh, I did know the story of Roger Bannister um, in advance. I, I didn't know that he actually came in fourth place in the Helsinki Olympics uh, before I read your book, which I, I'm bringing up because, you know, notwithstanding the accomplishment of making it to the Olympics, fourth place has got to be probably the worst place to finish because... You know, like, for example, I know of a swimmer who won a gold medal, and he was not expected to have won. He won, if I remember correctly, by three one-hundreds of a second. You know, after all of those years of effort. But the difference between him and fourth place was less than the length of his arm. Yeah. The margin's very you know, tight. So, you know, so... Well, exactly. And the disparities in rewards are huge, but the disparities in ability are very small. Like the difference between him and second place, the guy who was supposed to have won, if you measure that, the next time you trim your fingernails, you're trimming off about three one hundredths of a second. Which, I mean, so, so leading off your book with a theme like my 359 uh and i know you're an athlete um so so how did you land on that let's just start there sure sure well everything about i was vaguely familiar with the banister story and uh in the financial planning world we get the opportunity to go to conferences and i and i there have been seeds planted in my mind over the years but it wasn't until I went to a conference in 2014, and maybe we touch on that a little bit later, um, I was only able to make it to one session, and it was the Bannister story. The same story I'd heard before, but I was just at a place in my life where those seeds just took root. And going back to that Helsinki Olympics and, and, and what I refer to as our own Helsinki moments, those setbacks, those failures, those disappointments. And, and I agree, make it to the Olympics, you know, that is a lifetime achievement. But fourth place, especially when in Roger Bannister's situation where he wasn't only expected to win gold, he was expected to dominate gold. And to bounce back from that and to have the vision and, and overcome the obstacles to go after this so much more larger accomplishments of doing the impossible. And, and that's the gist of the story, which is, you know, we're not all called to be world-class athletes or Olympic runners, but the subtitle of my book 
the man I'm called to be. We're all called to do something. We're all called to be someone. Well, you know, the ability, okay, so the mindset, the limiting belief up until Bannister was that it was impossible for the human body to run a mile in under four minutes. And everybody bought it, right? Everybody bought it. Everybody believed it. It became the self-fulfilling prophecy that governed people and limited people. And I, I have to think that the expectation that he had of winning in Helsinki and then for having it be so dramatic, that adversity must have fueled him uh, to break through. And then, of course, you know, that adversity gave his own success so much more meaning. But as you say in your book, less than, I think, a couple of months later, the next person broke four minutes. And now it's, it's pretty much automatic, you know, for somebody at that level. So I want to I pivot here to the conversation about goals. Because, you know, I've been keeping a journal for, it's got to be 25 years. And I always, when I buy the journal, so think about it, in December, January, I buy an empty book for 25 bucks. And I try to fill it all year with enough information that'll make it worth at least 25 bucks to me, right? Just capture. And that, by the way, was, yeah. And, and that was motivated by uh, my exposure to Jim Rohn. And I'll touch on that later because there's some really neat parallels to your story. But, you know, he talks about accomplishment and adversity and faith. And the thing I liked about what you talk about in your book around goals is you, you sort of compartmentalize. So you, you talk about general goals, and then you talk about stretch goals, and then you talk about the 359 goals. And I, I like that, that framework. So do you, can you expand a little bit on that? Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I think for most of us, we think of goals as, maybe a glorified to-do list, things we want to achieve and things we should achieve. Um, beyond that, I mean, there's, there's those stretch goals, those, those things that in the past I would have thought, um, you know, that those lie just beyond maybe impossible, uh, but certainly they stretch us. They make us uncomfortable. It's really reaching for something, whether it's a production limit or a physical limit or the thing that I love about the entire 359 story is how all of that can relate to our, what's most important, our, our personal lives, our spiritual lives, um, how we operate in, in those realms. But a 359 is a complete game changer. It's the most powerful thing for me of, of achieving whatever that 359 is, whatever that impossible accomplishment is, is just that awareness that, gosh, I can do, I can do something that I knew was impossible the same way that those other runners prior to Bannister breaking the four minute mark said, well, there's no way we can do this. So we're not even going to try. But when he broke that barrier, and I would say more significantly, much more significantly, the mental barrier rather than the time barrier, then just the floodgates opened. And that's, that's what I love about that framework, which is the 359 is just blows the roof off everything. It's a complete game changer for me. Yeah, well, for sure. And of course, you know, you think about goal setting, we're so lucky. I mean, I know you're a man of faith. And one of the greatest gifts we've been given is free will. And of course, our free will is uh, somewhat impacted by other people's free will. But of course, there's also this relationship with God's will. And I'm trying to make sense of all of this myself at this stage of my life because, you know, every now and again, something happens and I look up to the sky and I said, hey, you know, that was you, right? Because if, if something great happens it's, and, and it came out of nowhere, but then something's 
that's maybe not so great happens. And uh, I want to I want to segue to that because you had a window in your life where you were dealt a hand where you, I, I'm sure you probably looked up and said, you know, what what's the meaning of this? What's the purpose of this? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. I, um, on a on a random Monday morning between dropping my three boys off at elementary school and and getting into work, I stopped by the doctor's office to do something about a nagging cough that I've had, and I got introduced to the world of cancer. And my schedule, I don't, I have no idea what I was supposed to do the rest of that day or, or week, uh, but life certainly pivoted. And um, the uh, referring back to those Helsinki moments, those things that we don't have control over, I, I think that was when I when I regained myself. Um, you know, we've many people have had that experience either directly or indirectly, but it's a very surreal moment to hear those words come from somebody to say. You have cancer. We don't know what it is right now. It could be A, B, or C, and we need to do X, Y, and Z right now to start going down that path. And I will tell you, Duncan, one of the benefits of being in our business, being in the financial planning business, is it is, it is very goal-oriented. And I had that mindset uh, as we started through that early stage of the process of at least having some kind of anchor to, to try to keep things relatively intact, to recognize, okay, this is what we need to do today. This is what we need to do this week. And your world or my world got very small. And what was really important became very clear very quickly. And it was a really challenging place, but it was also a really cool, graceful place to be where rather than going kind of on an unending process and journey of annual goals and fill in the blanks, it was a very direct, this is the next objective. And what do we need to do to do this, to get over this hump? Um, so that's, that's, I think I was somewhat, maybe not uniquely qualified, but I was partially equipped to handle it, maybe better so than someone who hasn't had that kind of experience in goal study. Well, that that's actually a perfect entree to my next sequence of questions. So I know being a high achiever, having that athletic pedigree, I'm sure your mindset about goal setting impacted your relationship with your clients. Were you took them through their own process of understanding their goals and the fact that financial independence is a means to those ends. Did, did that window, I mean, I, I just have to imagine from a credibility perspective and a conviction perspective, did that make you a better financial advisor and that impact your conversation about goal setting with your clients? Absolutely. And, and I think before that, it was more about numbers and statistics and, and uh, probability, uh, more of the science rather than the art of financial planning. Um, but the awareness of recognizing that these are resources, financial planning is these are resources that are going to help us accomplish our life's goals. And um, sometimes putting things off indefinitely or for 10 years or 20 years or 30 years. Um, sometimes we never get there. And uh, to find that perfect balance or as perfect as you can between embracing today, planning for the future, but still living in today. Well, you know, illness in general I mean, if you think of six degrees of separation, we all know somebody to varying degrees who has been on the receiving end of a lightning bolt, right? Like that. 
And in my, in my conversations in the past, whether it's with friends or family members or clients, uh, to your point, one of the recurring themes is how gratitude gets amplified. And I remember, this wasn't all that long ago, uh, somebody who um, is, is not here anymore. And she, she couldn't believe how much people take for granted. And <clears throat> um, you know, again, Jim Rohn, uh, very philosophical on personal and professional development, he, he essentially said, you have to have immense appreciation for what you have while you aspire to what you want. Where, where, where you could say gratitude is the fuel of ambition. And I guess there's a yin-yang yin yin dynamic there, but <clears throat> I know you've got, you've got uh, you know, a pretty substantial family. You've got a great business. You've got... Uh, a meaningful shadow that you cast on the world. What what has this done for you in terms of your ambition and your gratitude? Well, that's that's I appreciate those kind words, and that's that's probably large largely over uh, spoken, but I appreciate that. Um, I tell you, I I think the uh, gratitude for me has just been the basis. And, and especially going through that experience, um, as, as you probably know from reading the book, I am a, a fan of Proverbs. And, and I start every morning with a chapter of Proverbs. And as I've said, I have three teenage boys now. Um, and they think like teenage boys do sometimes. And uh, very often I say, pride comes before the fall. And, and keep, stay humble and stay in gratitude. And I've also learned that the journey, you don't ever arrive. It is a constant journey in this life, on, on this pilgrimage, that we go from, whether it's mountaintop to mountaintop or valley to valley or whatever it might be, uh, but being able to appreciate what you have, and I think the other thing that I, I would throw in there, Duncan, is, and this is something I've learned as an adult, that I, after going through cancer and, and, and doing other things since then, achieving my impossible, my 359s, is not to be afraid to fail. And I am, a, I am a huge victim of fear of failure if I allow myself to do it. Um, but I've, I've come to appreciate that, uh, you know, failure is a, is a natural Emotional response, that's a good thing that triggers, hey, there, there may be some danger here. But when you recognize, I think as Winston Churchill said, courage is recognizing what you're working towards is so much greater than what you're, what you're feel, fearful, fearful of. Um, that's, that's where I try to dwell and, and recognizing that whatever's next, the, the cool thing about that 359 spirit is, is not being limited and be thinking about, gosh, what impact can I have? Who can I help? What can I do next? Well, there's a counterintuitive lesson in there because I've come to realize if you think about, because I know <clears throat> if you think of the art and science of the fee-for-service professional, you have a good balance between the technical ability but also the sort of the artistic, the relationship side. And that's, that's rare. Some people are better at one than the other, but to have ability in both is very unique. And part of that enlightenment, I think, comes from that sometimes we have to detach ourselves from an expectation of an outcome and just keep our heads down and do the work and make sure the trajectory is right. And that's why goals are such a powerful beacon. But there's a purity in just doing the work and just having a faith that it will compound. 
It will take you there. I, I can't remember who said that uh, frustration and anxiety is born in the place between expectation and reality, right? So if you have an expectation that this is going to happen and you fall short, well, that's where we become frustrated. But if we're just fixated on the on the activity, and, and again, so I've got a couple of boys, maybe a little older than yours, and, and to your point about pride just before the fall, I mean, that's so profound. Because I, of all the things I don't want to see uh, take root in my kids, it's self-importance and uh, entitlement. You know, I, I heard a great, a great expression that, because I know you're in the same boat. My kids, my kids are privileged. I mean, they, my, my oldest kid will tell me all the time, like he won the lottery. And I, I reminded him that privilege is being born on third base. Entitlement is you thinking you hit a triple. And if you'll, yeah, it's so, so good, right? And so I've said, you know, just take nothing for granted, have immense gratitude, uh, no self-importance, and God wants you to be happy. Have aspirations. Self-actualization is a thing. Like, reach for that. But go back to Jim Rohn. It's not for what it gets you. It's for what it makes of you. So that statement, the man I am called to be, self-actualization, I mean, the reason for being is to see who we can become. And of course, adversity plays such a role in that. And it doesn't seem like it at the time. And I, I, I was trying to find in your book where you, you know, don't misinterpret this, but maybe bottomed out where you were probably, it got dark. And I, I saw glimpses of that, especially where you were uh, walking through your journal with uh, Claire and, and sort of keeping the world updated. But did, did you find yourself bottoming out? Yeah, absolutely. The, the, there were plenty of dark periods for sure. And, I, and, and one thing with my, my journey through chemotherapy um, was the combination of chemicals, and I think just stress, obvious anxiety of what it's like to go through cancer with four young children. Um, I couldn't sleep. I, I went probably seven or eight months with, you know, I'd get three hours here or two hours there. And sleep deprivation mm -hmm. is a terrible thing. Um, mm -hmm. So one morning I was, you know, I was up at three o'clock um, feeling terrible and, um, I was, I was reading the gospel of Matthew and I came to the verse and I don't remember what the verse was, but it was when Jesus was, was tempted. And, and then when, when the devil left him, it said, behold, the angels minister to him. And I tell you, Duncan, that moment, it's that I've, I've gone through that verse before, but the realization that, wow, if Jesus Christ needs to be ministered to. If he needs that kind of help, then mm. certainly woe is me to think I'm above that. Not that I thought I was above it, but it just was, it landed at the exact right spot at the exact right time to say, you know what, this is going to be okay. What, whatever the outcome is, I'm going to focus on the parts that I can control and I'm going to pour everything I have into that. That's the gist of the 359 spirit. And the things that I can't control, I'm going to turn those over. And it's, it's living the serenity prayer, which is easy to say, very difficult to do. Mm -hmm. Well, as you said that, I felt it. And it, it, it was up there with when I was introduced to uh, Job. And yeah, just feeling sorry for ourselves and uh, yeah, that's, that's, that's profound. Now, um, I, <laughs> first of all, I love the, uh, thread that you wove through the book where you, um, uh, made connections to your musical, uh, theme 
and the, and the music you listen to after your treatments and throughout the pro progression. So obviously music plays a role in your life and uh, right up there with ice cream, I think that's a recurring theme too. <laughs> but um, I'm curious. Yeah, yeah, well, I mean, exactly. There, Well, ice cream's got to be one of the food groups, right? <laughs> Uh, what, what other books, uh, were you introduced to, um, during that period? Like I'm thinking, did men search for meaning come onto your radar or was it already there or what else were you introduced to, to help you cope and, and see past it? I tell you my favorite book and, and oddly enough, and, and this may be one of those, just, just one of those things. Um, I started listening to it again the other day because I, I have a pretty good commute, so I listen to books on audio or the library app. Uh, it was Phil Knight's book, Shoe Dog. Mm -hmm. It's the Phil Knight story. And if I ever feel like I need a little shot of giddy up, um, I listen to that book or read that book because I think of Nike and Phil Knight as this incredibly successful organization and that must have been the way it's always been. And it couldn't be farther from the truth. And this was a guy, you talk about having to work things out and grind things out. I mean, here's a guy who was 20, 25 years into his business who was still just trying to meet payroll while signing these big professional athletes. And I just love his, his vision of what he ultimately is trying to accomplish. And it's not about an IPO or stock price or whatever. It's about creating this perfect shoe to allow a runner to perform at the level that they're capable of performing. And I just love that book. And I love all of the, the, the um, themes and the threads that run along with that book. So, so that would be my answer for you on that one. Okay. No, fair enough. And, and, and that is a, uh, a different form of adversity, of course, but adversity's a real thing. And again, I, 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 I often go back to some really um, long-term sort of universal truths and philosophies and uh, the, the whole yin-yang, like you need the dark to appreciate the light, right? You need the cold to appreciate the warm. Um, and, and again, adversity comes in different forms. So we have to let it serve us, not hurt us in whatever way to the best of our ability. I am curious. Um, <clears throat> I really loved Man's Search for Meaning, Viktor Frankl, right? I mean, that's, that's heavy. Uh, did you happen to come across a book called Chasing Daylight by Eugene O'Kelly? I did not. So, so it, it, you talk about enlightenment and giving adversity meaning and, and really understanding purpose in our lives. So Eugene O'Kelly ran KPMG and uh, he got a call too and he was given 100 days to live. And if you look at that book and if you like at books on tape, uh, this is probably one that I think, you know, is chasing daylight. And he says, how my forthcoming death transformed my life. So he wrote his book in that hundred plus or minus days. And, uh, you know, I, I don't know how far you, you've gone into, uh, you know, like sort of, um, there's, there's of course books and stories about people who, uh, have died and then came back. And, uh, you know, I, I, I don't, I'm trying to find little pieces in all of these and just sort of assemble something that will galvanize my belief system and my philosophy and in life. But, uh, I can just, Imagine because I know you're enlightened, Dan, and and your impact on legacy. Like you said, something really interesting in your book about those hypothetical questions. And I think, if I remember correctly, 
like, would you, would you run into, I think, was it, would I run into a house on fire to save my wife or something big? Is that what you said? Yeah, sure. And, but the, the, the thing, so, sorry, sorry to cut you off, but I was, I wanted to bookend that because the thing I liked is we all would say that, but the probability that we'd ever have to be validated for that is very unlikely. But on the other side of it, what about the small little decisions we have to make every single day that speak to who we're becoming? I really like that. So if you want to run with that for a second, I thought that was quite profound. Yeah. Yeah. And that's going back to the 100 days. And, and, and when you're in that space of complete clarity, which we'd like to say you don't need a terminal diagnosis to get there, but the reality of life is oftentimes we do, you know, you just, you just come to those realizations that look, of course I would run into a burning building or, or, or of course I would give my kidney or whatever it might be, but you know, will I arrange my schedule today so I can get home in time so that Claire can go play tennis with her friends? Will I sit down with my nine-year-old and go through her language arts homework, which is not my favorite area? Will I be able to do that for 30 minutes this evening? Those are the little daily tests, daily chores, daily opportunities we all get to validate those larger things that the probability of those ever happening is, is, is nil. So that's where the focus, that's where the energy needs to be poured into. Well, and like financial planning, that's incremental. I mean, the the house on fire, that's dramatic. That's heroic. Um, that's like hitting a walk-off Grand Slam. I mean, that's so big. But there's there's something powerful in the small decisions that compound. Because we all know how money compounds. Disciplines compound too. And the man I am called to be... There has to be an element within that that is propelled by those small little incremental decisions and disciplines that build over time. Whether it's the 25-year overnight success story in business or whether it's setting up your kids for success uh, as they enter adulthood, that, that to me was one of the biggest takeaways in my, 50, my 359. Yeah, absolutely. And, and and I've often wondered if my job as a financial planner and, and recognizing it's those small incremental steps, as you say, those deferring gratification for larger future gratifications, um, that same level of discipline that helps you manage your finances and help you manage your, your finances well, also helps you and allows you to do these other things, those it's the daily choices and the daily disciplines that we have. And, and one, of my, one of my favorite things is, is executing small. You know, think big, dream big, big, scary visions, which are great and they're fun. And I think a lot of people sometimes in December throw those on the board and then they revisit them the next December. But it comes down to, hey, Monday morning, it's those small things we need to execute on day in and day out just to keep grinding and keep moving us closer and closer to whatever that vision might be. Well, let me ask you something back to your, your professional role because, and I want to touch on your equation that you have in your book and I'll come to that in just a second. But have you ever had a client who allowed their disciplines to compound. They followed your advice and the value of your process and your guidance. And yet, when they achieved their goal, you had to give them permission to maybe go live a little. Has that ever happened? Absolutely. You know, there's, there's, it's hard to unwire decades of habits. And that's a good and bad thing. Um, I, you know, we, we have a saying around our office that there's some people who 
have money and will always have money. And there's some people who don't have money and will never have money. It's just not who they are. And so when someone spends 30, 35 years squirreling away and saving, sometimes we, we have some clients that we have to say, look, you've got to cut back on your spending. And then we have other clients to your point who we say, look, go do those things that you've been saving for. And so absolutely. Well, I was talking to an advisor a couple of weeks ago, and he literally uh, raised his voice in love with one of his clients, insisting that they fly first class on this trip. And because first of all, he convinced them to go on the trip. It was a trip of a lifetime. These people will never outlive their money. But I mean, they were frugal. They lived and they understood that, that debt compounds, neglect compounds, right? So disciplines compound. So, but, but the, it, it became part of what would govern them. So he literally had to raise his voice and said, look, don't make me call the airline and get you upgraded because I'm going to do it if you don't. Yeah. And they ended up doing it. And it was like this symbol uh, of accomplishment. Like, wow, like, like recognize this milestone that you've achieved. And anyway, so talk to me about your, I'm going by memory here, but you had an equation in your book that spoke to um, the two pains, the pain of discipline and the pains of regret. So talk, talk for a minute about your, your equation there. Yeah, so if I had to boil my experience with cancer down to one lesson, if I could write it in the language of math, it's the fear of failure plus the cost of discipline. It's exponentially less than the pain of regret. And, and there is a moment that stands out in my mind, and I think that will always stand out in my mind, of when we got to a certain point in chemotherapy where it was time to do a PET scan to see if it was working. This was, this would have been, it was, it was April 1st. We were three months into chemo, um, hair out, you know, all that stuff. And so we're halfway through chemo. And so now here's, here's the test. Let's see if it's working. Uh, if it is, that's very good. We're on the right trajectory. If it's not, then, then we need to back up and regroup. And I was laying in the, PET scan, uh, was there for 20, 25 minutes, very oddly peaceful. Uh, I got out of there, Claire and I walked down to the chapel. And but the hour, hour and a half between the PET scan and waiting for the results and waiting for to see, is there a future? Is, is this what's, what's going to happen? And just kneeling there in front of the altar, uh, with my wife next to me, thinking about our four young kids at home and just praying for grace. Please, Lord, whatever happens, just be with me. Whatever the outcome is, just be with me and we'll handle it. And that was the moment where, you know, I, I start thinking about why didn't I do things? What was I afraid of? Whose opinion was important to me? And, and why, why? What do I want to do? What is the cost of doing those things? If I can get over my fear of failure, which even after going through cancer, after doing some of the really cool things I have, that's still a very deeply seated, I think, innate human response. But the awareness to be able to recognize and say, okay, that's, I'm aware of that, but, but this, is, this is not the overriding signal. If I can get over that hump, if I can recognize what that vision is, can I get up every day and just execute the plan? That cost of discipline. I don't ever want to be in a position where I'm waiting for a test or I get some news or whatever it might be and go, man, I wish I would have fill in the blank. So that's my formula. Fear of failure plus the cost of discipline is exponentially less than the pain of regret. Well, and your point about being at peace, 
I mean, being at peace with the dynamic between free will and God's will, um, it's got to be liberating. And there's got to be a, there's got to be an energy that's born there that I think is quite meaningful. Well, Dan, I want to I, I want to close the loop here. Um, I always go into these conversations saying to myself, look, if I'm the only person who listens, I want this to be valuable and meaningful. And um, this time of year, I have my own little goal setting exercise that I frame in W5 that just bridges one year to the next. So I'm just going to put it out there. If I'm the only person that hears it, I, I'm sure your book, I mean, if nobody read your book and just the exercise of you writing it was probably powerful. Um, but here, here's my little goal setting exercise. I call it W5. It's the five questions, right? So the first question is what? What are you grateful for? So I just, I do a little assessment myself and I try to invest the past into the future and just take a moment to be intentional about, okay, I'm, I'm pretty lucky. So that's the first question. What am I grateful for? Second question is, where do I see myself in the future? Like Nirvana, what does that look like? Like where in the future, where am I going? And I, I try to get things out of my head and just make this list of things that I want to accomplish qualitatively, quantitatively. I mean, just as panoramic as possible. So what, what am I grateful for? Where do I see myself? And then as I look at my little wish list there, I, I then say, okay, when do I hope to accomplish this? Just to give it some type of, you know, some parameters. Uh, not, not that they're etched in stone or anything, but just, you know, when, when am I hoping these will become a reality? Okay, so what, when, where, why? Why is all of this important to me? And, uh, you know, uh, that, I, I'm sure in your own professional life, I mean, we, we put a lot of emphasis on the how. How do I do it? But why is it important? I think the how can come out of that because we realize how strong the motivation is. And then the last question, which is the, the biggest question, I believe, is who do I need to become to make all of this a reality? So I'm not going to just sort of ride the status quo and ride my inertia, confidence, and momentum in the spirit of working on the business and on myself. What do I need to do? Who do I need to become? Who do I need to be around? Who do I need to learn from? You know, what books do I need to read? I mean, in order to attract this, how do I make myself more attractive? So I, I, you know, this time of year, this is front and center for me. I just wanted to put that out there. Um, I, I, I never, you know, you get a little older in life, you start to realize what matters and what gives life meaning conversations like this are very, very meaningful for me. Um, so I really appreciate that. Any, any closing comments, things that we didn't touch on that you came onto the call wanting to talk about? No, I, I, I appreciate the chance to do this. I, I, um, one of my big goals for next year and going forward is, is, uh, bringing that 359 story and spirit, uh, through the, um, talks that I do and the keynote opportunities that I get. So that, uh, that, that is front and center on my list of, uh, looking into next year, um, what I'm, where I'm trying to bring the story and to whom I'm trying to bring that story to. Well, and it's interesting. I bet you, your story, as more time goes by, the focal point becomes more about the man you are becoming than than even what you overcame, because what we've overcome, I mean, <laughs> uh, in my own small little amateurish way, I always say that uh, 
adversity is only cool after you've overcome it while you're going through it. It's not cool. But once it's behind you, it gets cool. But then some time goes by and we don't want to be defined by that. So I, I'm really interested to hear how your story is going to evolve as you move towards and get a lot, you know, even further clarity on who you are becoming and who you were called to be. That, that'll be a neat addition to your story, I'm sure. Are you starting to see little flickers of that? Yes. Yeah, we're um, picking up some steam there with uh, sharing that story. And, and the My 359 book is really about our journey through that adversity. The My 359 or, or the Your 359 talk is more about sharing the banister story, sharing a little bit about our story, but, but really framing that a lot like we've done today, which is, hey, how does this fit into your life? What are your health thinking moments? What are the, who is it that you are called to be? Yeah. And I've, I've learned, Duncan, that I can't motivate you. I can't motivate my kids. I, motivation comes from within. Intrinsic motivation is the only lasting motivation. You can give tools. You can give awareness and perspective and maybe a sense of urgency. And that's what I've learned from sharing the story at different conferences for people who come back and say, hey, your story touched me. And because of that, I did X, Y, or Z. And it's not all, it's not just the physical things. If, uh, one of my favorites is a grandmother who never learned to swim. And every summer vacation, her grandkids would say, Grandma, come swimming with us. And she never could. And she sent me a note after hearing me talk and shared that with me and said, one winter, unbeknownst to everyone, including my husband, I took swimming lessons. And my 359 was that next summer when the grandkids asked me to swim with them, I slipped in the pool. I thought, what a great 359 that is. It's different for all of us, but, but the chassis, the infrastructure, the theme is still the same. Well, listen, that's, that's very meaningful because if you think about your reach and impact on people's lives, like I'm sure you're going to keep attracting people to you who have their own story or their own accomplishment inspired in some part by you uh in terms of a legacy and a reach i mean that's meaningful and that for that grandmother uh her sense of euphoria and seeing it in her grandkids eyes it must have just been off the charts oh awesome i i've got goosebumps now thinking about it and i think there's a lesson in there which is when i believe the book of Proverbs is just a really great blueprint as to how we live our lives, regardless of your faith or spiritual um, orientation. Um, and when we serve others and when we live our lives the way we're supposed to, uh, we just plant seeds. And it's not always important for us to know how those seeds grow or where they grow, but the fact that we can have a positive impact, that we can produce grace, or someone else. And as a guy who went through a stretch of life that was a consumer of grace on a grand scale, recognizing that I have a debt to repay someone, a lot of unnamed people who did a lot of things for my family. And if you want to do something for me, great. But when you do something for my kids, my wife, when I'm not yeah. able to, I don't ever forget that. And those are the things that are beyond you know, in, in the business world, we focus on, you know, percentage of growth or whatever it might be. In, in this line of business, it's a little bit fun for me because there's a little bit of fuzziness in there. Not everything, I can't always measure the outcome, but it goes back to what we talked about earlier, which is I'm going to focus on the activities. I'm going to focus. I have yeah. that big vision. I'm going to execute small and I'm going to get up every day and I'm just going to believe this is what I'm meant to do. Well, and right back to that point, I mean, who am I meant to be? Who am I called to be? Who am I becoming here? Who do I need to become to attract all of this? There are teachers everywhere, and there are lessons 
to be learned that have either been taught 2,000 years ago, 4,000 years ago, or, you know, tomorrow. Just being open, right? The clay is soft. And we're just, back to your point about the humility of, look, I, I'm just going to just absorb as much information as I can. And especially, I mean, I'm sure as a dad, that self-motivation piece, right? I think it was Confucius. When the student is ready, the teacher will appear. So we just keep keep putting lessons out there. And I think it was in um, Atlas Shrugged where uh, one of the characters said, I would die for you, but I won't live for you. Like, I, I can't want it more than you do. Like, I would run into the burning building and save you, but I can't want your own success more than you do. So, but just inspiring somebody to take action and disrupt a pattern. I mean, that's why we're so lucky in the, in the world we live in. That, and, and we don't even hear about all the impact we have. Um, but it's nice when we do. And I, I well, listen, I'm, I didn't really have expectations coming into the call. I just, I know you're a good guy and we've connected and uh, I knew this would be meaningful, but uh, it was as meaningful for me as I could have, I could have hoped. And just, just going through your book and just preparing for the conversation was a great exercise, but the conversation itself was very meaningful. So I appreciate that a lot, Dan. Oh, thank you, Duncan. Feelings are mutual for sure. Thank you very much. So uh, anybody listening in, uh, just you, you'll be able to find Dan. It's, it's easy. Uh, you can go to my359.com. That's spelled out the words, my359.com. Uh, or shoot Dan an email, uh, dan at my359.com. And just learn a little more. And just remember, the best way to take care of your clients and take care of your family is just, just to take impeccable care of yourself. And that's why these conversations and the whole pursuit of self-actualization is so powerful because... The moment we stop learning, it's like trying to pour from an empty cup. It's just not, not going to happen. So, Dan, thanks a lot. And I'm sure we're going to cross paths again in the future. Um, but I uh, really appreciate you carving out the time because I know you're a busy guy. So thank you very much. Absolutely. Thank you, Duncan. Thank you for listening to this actionable podcast. We also post From the Field videos weekly on Duncan's LinkedIn and Pareto Systems YouTube channel. And we post everything we do on our homepage at ParetoSystems.com. Make it a great day.